Episode 1, Identity. The rug was thick and dense. It was one of those 1970s large braided wool area rugs. I remember it was multicolored with browns, golds, whites, and some other warm tones. The individual braids laid out in an oval pattern made for a perfect racetrack for matchbox cars. This rug was part of my childhood for several years as it helped cover the plywood floor of the new addition my dad and grandpa had recently completed on the family home. It was June 1978 and I was five years old. I had a habit, like most kids, of lying prone on the floor to watch cartoons. While on the living room floor, I remember looking up at the window drapes that would be changed out periodically, sometimes a chocolate brown and sometimes a deep gold color. They were long and heavy, extending all the way to the floor. The room was sparsely decorated, but color-coordinated. The house was located in the Ardmore district of South Bend, Indiana, on a short road called Kensington. Ardmore was a small area of town on the west side, just south of the Michiana Regional Airport. At the time, it could be considered lower to middle class, certainly blue collar and almost an equal number of retirees. This area was my childhood stomping grounds, where my paternal grandparents lived just down the street, and where my mother Janice spent many of her teenage years and her early 20s. The Kensington house was originally occupied by her and my dad until their divorce. It was a tiny house back then and until the addition was added in the late 70s. It was still a small house. My sister Dina and I had been living with my dad, his wife, and my half-brother since my mom was reported missing in July 1975. As I was lying on the floor watching my cartoons, I heard some commotion and loud voices coming from the kitchen. I knew we had some visitors at the house but I don't recall who they were. My dad rushed into the living room to tell me that he was taking Sandy to the hospital to have the baby. Sandy would eventually become my adoptive mother and who I would know as my mom. My dad told me that my grandfather, his dad, would be coming over soon to watch us. I got up from the floor, went into the dining room where I could see Sandy in the kitchen holding her stomach. It was at this moment, I think that I had my first episode of what I now understand to be a confusion with my own identity. I remember I was excited about the baby being born and it would be another half brother. I also remember feeling an emotion I can only look back on as distress. 
I began to feel confused about what was happening and who Sandy really was. Because in July of 1975, I was only two and a half years old when my mom was murdered. So solid memories of her did not exist for me. But at five years old, and in that moment, I somehow knew something was missing. Over the course of several months and years, bits and pieces of Janice as a mother were shared with my sister and I from our grandparents on both sides. Family photos of Janice were visible in a limited capacity. Kensington was a special place for me because I felt close to my mom. I knew she had once lived in the home and decorated it in her own way. My paternal grandparents were also just down the street within walking distance. I could easily walk there and talk openly about my mom. And my grandma also had some favorite photos of my mom to show me. My mom's identity and the circumstances of her death were kept quiet due to our ability to understand it as children. I can remember seeing one photograph on display at my paternal grandparents' home that was black and white, very soft in focus with a detailed focal point on the face. I now know this photograph to be one of her high school yearbook photos. It always fascinated me how beautiful the woman was in the picture. That's your mom, Jimmy, my grandma would say. Those words and how they were vocalized gave me the sense that there was something important to know. The same identity distress would surface each time I stared into that photograph. My sister and I did not know it at the time but the adults in the room were attempting to protect us from the haunting and disturbing truth that our mother had been murdered and was never found. We know who did it. Um, that's not even a question, but we want to recover these women's bodies for, these, for their families. And I think any means necessary to do it, we are interested in. At the Kensington House, weatherman Dick Addis of WNDU was always on the 12-inch black and white that was set up in the dining room while we had our family dinner. The table was a formica green and white leaf pattern with aluminum chairs and matching cushion pads. Sun or the rain, we can be like they are. Come on, baby.
The scent from the kitchen to the table was of baked pork chops and some yummy pork and beans. Sometimes spaghetti, sometimes beef and vegetable stew. The table was flanked with my dad on the left and Sandy directly to my right. Directly to my left was my sister and across the table were my two brothers. Beyond my brothers, I could see the black and white TV. At some point, my dad turned off the TV and told my sister and I that there was something he needed us to do. He began to explain to us that because of our brothers, and specifically our youngest brother, it was probably time for my sister and I to begin calling Sandy our mom. He said it was important because she was the one taking care of us, and it would help to not confuse our brothers. I remember this moment as if it were yesterday. I looked over at Sandy and I remember thinking everything was going to be okay. And by 1982, Sandy had legally adopted my sister and I. The law requires a five to seven year waiting period for a missing person to be considered deceased. The court adoption procedures were a happy occasion, but my identity distress surfaced each time I saw my mom's photo. Fast forward several years, and the cat is mostly out of the bag. Through the insight and the devotion that my grandparents had for my mom, my sister and I were provided information regarding her mysterious disappearance. Through their storytelling, tucked away photographs and decadent rumors, they shared with us the priceless history of our mother. These family discussions blossomed from mutual respect and an involuntary need for identity. And it all came just in time for our whippersnapper behaviors. Yeah, we were teenagers. And in 1988, at 15 years old, I was determined to get involved. And I possessed no lack of uncertainty of youth. At Kensington, the dining room had been updated with a large, formal, solid wood and wood veneer dining table. It could be extended with at least two leaves and had really a fancy feeling. This table came in handy when I brought home a box given to me by my grandma. It was full of newspaper articles dating back to 1975. It was a large pile of papers, somewhat well-preserved, but still showed the signs of oxidation of the yellowing kind. I decided the dining table was the best spot to study, organize, and discover whatever it was I was about to read. I remember my grandmother's words as she handed me the box. You're going to read about stuff I'm no longer able to talk about. But you're old enough now to know the truth, and maybe you'll find something.
If I ever had identity issues, I certainly found some resolutions after the four plus hours of uninterrupted concentration. If you've ever tried to conduct research with only microfiche and news reports, then you can understand the intensity and dedication of finishing what you've started. I even made my experience official with research notes carefully written on a yellow, wide-ruled legal pad. My notes were meant to keep track of who was who, who did what, and when they allegedly did it or said it. A moment came when I had to get up and stretch my legs. I walked into the kitchen to grab a snack. I turned around, looked back into the dining room. The table was aglow with the spread of papers. The dimmed light which flooded from the amber chandelier globes seemed to float the yellow oxidized tones of the papers above the table surface. It was fitting that I coexisted in the same house my mom had lived in as a wife and mother. As I stared back at the table and saw what I now can consider a moment in history, I was grateful, I was proud, and I had achieved some identity. Remember, this moment in time occurred in 1988. This was also the decade of 80s music and the coveted Walkman radios. During my four plus hours of study and research, I made sure my concentration was aided by the help of my Walkman radio and headset. I knew if I had my headset on and was listening to music, I would avoid most interruptions that might occur from family members who frequently walked into the dining room in order to reach the kitchen. I remember receiving receiving looks as family members passed by, but by the time I was 15, most people knew I could be an oddball. My staunch attitude and selfish spread of ancient newspapers came of no surprise to anyone. What I want to know is why you think that reaching out to random fucking people on Facebook that might remotely be associated with this family is okay. How is it that you think that that's okay? A confession I have to finally reveal is that 1988 was also the year that Bette Midler released her remake of Wind Beneath My Wings. The local pop station, Sunny 101.5, played that song at least five times over the course of the four plus hours that I had spent scouring over all these newspaper articles. The melody of that song has remained a permanent attachment for me to most memories of my mom. I know it's cliche and a bit corny. The song and the artist have had its critics and jokester spotlights. But for me, it's just the truth. And I have never told anyone about my reoccurring sentimental memory of Bet until now. Did you ever-
Initially, the lyrics were never part of my emotional connection with the song. In fact, I didn't really feel the lyrics applied all that well to the circumstances. I just connected with the melody and how it inspired me in that moment to keep reading and reading and reading. Decades later, I now understand those lyrics have purpose for me. I will circle back and emphasize what I mean at a later time. But I'll end on a less serious note. Did you ever know that you're my hero? You're everything I wish I could eat.